This is the 966, episode 83, Mr. Richard Wilson. <laughs> Mr. Lucian Ziegler. You had to Hello. think about that one, didn't you? <laughs> I did. Whenever I say episode, I remember that I don't write them down. You kind of have to keep it going on the fly. What we're doing. How are you? I'm good. I have to, in my uh, in my calendar, when I put anything, when an episode's confirmed or whatever, I, I have to link it. And my so when I go back and pull up the Night Sixes podcast, it has a list, so we, I can actually you know keep track of of who, what, and when, because uh, it's it's voluminous now. That's a lot. It's pretty good. I got to get on a similar system. Uh, I think that would help me a lot. But yeah, eighty three <laughs> episodes. That's a lot. Eighty three episodes is a lot. I wonder how many podcasts make it eighty three episodes. It's probably a smaller amount if you think about the number of podcasts out there. I, I don't know. I think. I think, you know, by the metrics, we're like top 15 or so percent of all podcasts. And like we said, we don't know, you know, I, I don't know what that means. I mean, in this podcast world, as we've figured out and you figured out, you know, getting it back into analytics and that sort of thing, it's hard to tell where anything is. It, it They give you big, broad metrics like number of countries and stuff like that. You can yeah. see your listener growth. Subscribers, listeners. Subscribers. Yeah. But then more granular detail is somewhat harder to come by. And there aren't any and, good services that provide it, really. So it's anyone's guess, but it's cool to see this podcast grow, Richard. And it's really nice, as we discussed last week, to get some interactions from our listeners. And actually, yeah. we got a really good one uh, this week. Richard, I guess it was end of last week, um, a listener sent us both a message on LinkedIn commenting on our recent episode with Bilal Saab. Um, and actually, if it's cool, I kind of just want to read this uh, feedback, which I think will be interesting to our listeners and viewers. We get this stuff all the time, and it's we want to incorporate it into the show because this is one big learning organism that we've created here. Yeah. Um, and every week is sort of a learning experience. So uh, got a comment on LinkedIn, gentleman based in Riyadh, just finished listening to your latest episode on the 966 with Bilal Saab. Thought it was a great discussion regarding the need for security cooperation restructuring here in Saudi Arabia. I'm living this daily and have been working the issue for the last several months, he says. Uh, went on to add, USA MAG is a U.S. Army organization that has partnered with the F Facility Security Services under the MOI. They train mostly on how to secure facilities like petroleum and industrial sites. OPM SANG is also completely U.S. Army and partnered with the Ministry of National Guard. USMIDM, however, is a joint endeavor with the Army, Navy, and Air Force, supporting all the military branches within the uh, MOD. So interesting, Richard, just getting a little feedback, some clarity. Uh, he goes on to add the three organizations should fall under a single unified SCO entity, agreeing with Bilal Saab in, in the episode, under a single chain of command. The situation needs to change soon if we want to keep pace. So thank you to this gentleman who reached out to us with this information. Fascinating. Um, really good. It is. And it's always um, rewarding when somebody who's knowledgeable, informed, and, and, uh, up to date on a sector or or any you know any particular part of our relationship with Saudi Arabia and is listening for one is pleased with what he's hearing for two and uh, reaches out and comments and edifies adds to the conversation for three so that's a that's a big hit for us we love that and like you say we, we get a lot of that absolutely and speaking of knowledgeable about certain sectors. This week, we have a great conversation coming up with, with Mohammed Soleiman, uh, who talks to us about technology in the Middle East. He's a uh, he's with the Middle East Institute and also with McClarty Associates. We just got a great conversation with Mohammed about the development of technology in the Middle East and that sector. Um, really a good one, Richard, coming up. 
I love the I love this and uh, and it, it's in keeping with what we're doing in general, which is looking at different aspects of the U.S. Saudi relationship, where it stands, how it can be better, and getting uh, really good input and analysis from some smart people. Yep, absolutely. Also, Richard, want to give a shout out to my wife's uncle Mark, who informed me over Easter two weeks ago that he is a listener to this podcast Mark, of this part. Mark, yeah, really smart guy. So when he when he said that he had been listening to the podcast, I sort of sat upright from my normal slouch and said, hey, uh, go on. And he had listened to virtually all of our episodes up to that point. So I had to sort of, you know, become a little bit more ready to discuss it. But yeah, really cool. What's up, Mark? I'm sure he's listening to this one as well. Hey, Mark. Welcome. To, welcome to the family. Welcome to the fam. Yeah. Great yeah. guy to play golf with, too. Really a, a really awesome. knowledgeable dude. So anyway, we've <laughs> Richard, we should just do a full episode where we just ramble on about our listeners. Mark will love that. What do you think? Let's get started. What's your one big thing this week, Richard? Uh, one big thing. I was um, when I was in Jeddah last month, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, I saw him early on the first day and he said, Hey, you know, take my driver and, you know, for all your other meetings and that sort of thing. And so I had his, his driver and it was great. Cause it was, uh, it wasn't a, it wasn't a town car. It was like, it was a, a van. So there's room for me cause I'm tall and I could talk and get to know Isa. Isa was the driver. And so I was spent all my time in Jeddah. I spent more time with Isa than anybody. And Isa Saudi didn't speak any English. Um, but we got on and we, you know, communicated great. I, you know, he would applaud me when my, you know, rusty Arabic would work a little bit. And we, you know, we sort of tag team the GPS where I'd give him left, right, straight, this sort of thing. And, uh, but it was great. And Isa also took us out to, um, to King Abdullah Economic City. So anyway, but Isa, big fan of Itihad Football Club, big fan. I mean, just rabbit. And he really wanted to, to get me. Be excited about Itihad, and uh, and so we talked a lot about the the football club, and and we he actually uh, took me over when we went to see uh, um, a basketball game over at um, uh, Al Ahli and uh, and another thing, but so it was it was at the Itihad football club facility, so he was just fired up. Um. And he also took me when I when we went to Souk al Shati, which is a kind of a cool place in Jeddah. It's an older style souk. Uh, looking for, he really wanted me to get uh, an Itihad jersey, and I really wanted to get one for Sam, my middle son. But we couldn't find any that are big enough. Sam's a big kid. Um, so anyway, uh, I felt like I don't really know much about the Saudi football league. And I, and I felt like I should know more. Um, so I took a look at some of the, just took a look at the league and, and, and I wanted to provide a little background on it. And I also didn't think it's important because currently it's a, it's essentially a 30 game season and they are, uh, they are about 20, 23 matches in 24 matches is, and Itihad is leading at the top of the table. Uh, they haven't won the the Saudi Professional League, as it's called, since 2007. And so this is, Isa, I'm sure, is very excited. Um, but let's, I just want to give a little background on the Saudi Professional League. So the Saudi Professional League, uh, SPL for short, 
16 teams started in 76. They used to, they would have games going back in the fifties, but it was done sort of regionally, but the Saudi professional league started with eight teams in 76, went to 10 and is now at 16. Um, and their seasons usually from August to, to May uh, it's a round Robin. Each team plays uh, every other team twice home and away. Typical three points for a win, one point for a loss, nothing for a draw. I mean, one, one point for a draw, nothing for a loss. Uh, recently went to eight foreign players allowed, including goalkeepers. Now you'll like this. We have a, we have a, one of our yellows today is on uh, Ronaldo, right? And Al Nasser. Al Nasser, as you probably know, Lucian, was recently tied by the lowly Al Faya club. Dang it right, be, it was. It, <laughs> our, our team in uh, Mujma, north of Riyadh. Uh, and is now, you know, languishing in uh, in twelfth uh, place of the sixteen league, just 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 above re- relegation right now. But they they uh, had a draw with Al Nasser, which which was a big you know big you know controversy and Al Nasser fans and everybody and everything. So so you know it's a lot of drama in the, in the Saudi professional league. But so you've got the Saudi professional league. What happens? Last three teams in the in that sixteen ta- league table get relegated each year. They get relegated to the next level league, which is the um, first the first division league. This is really confusing. It's like this, you know, the the uh, English setup, you know, you have the premier league and then you have English soccer league, and then you have the national club. And it's just weird. So you've got the Saudi professional league. Then you've got the next level is first division league, which is 20 teams. Uh, the top three teams in that league, you know, uh, get promoted. So uh, obviously a lot of drama every year. So you've got this, uh, the Saudi professional league, uh, 16 teams, first division leagues, 20 teams. Then you got the Saudi second division, which is 32 teams. So, you you know, you're getting farther into the, into smaller clubs and that sort of thing. And then there's another professional league. It's the Prince Faisal bin Fahad league, which is the under 21 Saudi Federation cup. Um but it's uh, so we're we're coming to close, like I said, uh, sort of August to May. We're coming to we're, we're coming down to the 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 wire. Itihad has a three point lead over Al Nasser, uh, and then then comes Al uh, Shabab and Al Halal. Al Halal is 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 kind of falling back this year. Historically, uh, the top teams over the years that have won titles, Al Halal has eighteen, Al Nasser nine, Itihad eight. Shabab six, and then down to you know fewer. Uh, most of the number and, and when the, the teams are spread out all over Saudi, and it's kind of fun. We saw that we saw the the little stadium in Al Mujma for Al Faya. I think that's the smallest stadium in that uh, in that first division league. Yeah, six thousand. Yeah, in in the Saudi uh, professional league, easily the smallest stadium. Um, but anyway, it's. It's fun to get into this, and it's fun to when you're there, like someone like Isa. I mean, the, the people just like here. I mean, people are just extremely involved, committed. You know, uh, you know, not rabid, but true fans. And it's fun to see. And the league itself, and, and the and the environment itself, is uh, fully evolved, getting better. The the league, you know, the Saudi league, that that professional league, is probably in the between the 50 and 60th ranked globally in terms of competitiveness. You know the top one, of course, is you know the Premier League and then La Liga and and the Bundesliga. Uh, but 
anyway, it's great stuff. And it was a lot of fun sharing this with Isa. Uh, and uh, Isa, hello. I really am pulling for Itihad. I know you are too. I got to get a jersey. Got to get one that fits me and also my big uh, middle son. And and then I'll be an Itihad fan as well. Richard, if he doesn't speak very much English, the chances that he listens to the 966 are fairly <laughs> low. So you're going to have to send him the segment that we're doing on YouTube, this segment on YouTube. So he gets right to it. Well, I'll send it. I'll send it to, to I'll send yeah. it to his, his, his employer, my good friend. And, uh, and have him forward and, it and show, show him in the car we'll yeah, on the phone. Like, Hey, that's the dude. <laughs> <laughs> I well, need to, I need to get an empty hot Jersey boy. It would be great to do here, but the ones we were looking at were, were just too small. Well, I mean, Itihad has won five in a row. And yeah, yeah like you mentioned, is in first place. That's awesome. Good for them. You're right. He must be stoked. Alfaya, yeah. Richard, uh, you know, you mentioned there was sort of up at the top. We we start strong. That's, I think, the sort of MO of Alfaya. And then, you know, as the league goes on, you know, maybe we fade out a little bit. That's okay. Um, but <laughs> they, They've never won it. They've never won it, but um, yeah, I mean, this is this is a good one, Richard, because I didn't I don't know much about this league. I don't we don't really follow soccer that closely in the U.S. in general, and then you and I both don't as well. Um, I mean, Chelsea aside, which I barely watch, but I'm officially a Chelsea fan, as we've laughed about before. Um, yeah, Richard, this is good because it's it's interesting because this is a a very these stadiums are large. Some of these stadiums are really large. Some Al Halal yeah. and, and uh, Al Itihad. I mean, even these stadiums that are twenty five thousand people. That's a that's a fairly good sized stadium. But yeah. yeah, I mean, Al Halal with the in King Fahd has the largest in Riyadh, and then Jeddah, the one you went to, sixty two thousand people. That's a, it's a pretty large stadium. Um, but yeah, yeah, Richard, this is really good. We've you know, it would be good to do uh, maybe get a, a segment going on you know, or an interview going with somebody who works with the league or somebody who's involved with the development of the league. Cause you know, with the acquisition of Ronaldo and then there's all these rumors about Messi, and then they're bringing in these high profile refs and coaches. We will talk about the Ronaldo drama in yellow when we wanted to separate the conversations today, because that's a separate thing, but I mean, the league is on the up and uh, I don't have too much to add to it, but um, it's, you can see they're, they're investing in it and not just with players, but in developing it locally. And, so that you have local fans. The only thing I will add is the last time I was in Riyadh, Richard, um, at my hotel, one of the teams, now I can't remember. I was trying to remember and look through, through some photos when you were talking, I was staying at the hotel. The dude's walking past. I mean, you kind of get the image of soccer players being smaller and, and you know, really skinny because they're working out all the time. These guys wearing their jumpsuits were huge dudes. And I was like, is there a pro football team here? Like what's going on? <laughs> or are these guys more of like the bruisers? Like what, what's going on here? But um yeah, I mean, this is uh, Ronaldo coming really brought international focus to the league. I mean, it was there before, but now with Ronaldo there, you're getting all kind of international, uh, you know, headlines being written about the league. And that's good. Um, but yeah, yeah, Alfaya, you know, on the way up, we need yeah. maybe need a bigger stadium soon. Let's get some wins under our belt and then. Yeah, well, first, let's avoid relegation. Right, right. We don't want to get relegated to. Is it the first league that's underneath the. The pro professional league, league yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. First division league. Cool. Yeah, that's a good one, Richard. Um, <laughs> it was fun, and like I said, Issa was a blast. He's a good guy, a good a good person, and uh, it was it was fun to share his excitement. So we maybe we can get one for Sam online, Richard. I don't know if you've looked. 
Uh, uh, Pretty niche know, offering in the U.S., but yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's, yeah, it is. Uh, it is. And they're all synthetic. I'm not a big on synthetic, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I do have a Saudi national jersey that Aziz, our boy Aziz, gave us. And it's, uh, I don't know when I'm going to wear it, but I did wear it when they played, which is kind of cool. Yeah. I don't play soccer, so I don't really have a use for it, but I do have it hanging up. Um, really cool. It's, it's just, well, it's cool to see it on the up and up. I'm thinking I'm getting the Newcastle's, Newcastle United's third kit, which is essentially the Saudi kit. Yeah. <laughs> it almost looks like your Falcons, your green Falcons kit. <laughs> I wonder why that is. <laughs> sheer coincidence. <laughs> uh, good one, Richard. Um, my one big thing this week, King Salman Park. We talked about it in a recent episode on sustainability. And I sort of wanted to like look into it because when I was looking into, you know, how many trees were being planted across Saudi Arabia and in Riyadh and the greenification of Riyadh, King Salman Park came up and I had seen it and you had seen it too, driving around Riyadh. It's, you can't miss it uh, because you can't really see it. So you can miss it, but (laughs) it's fenced in all the way around pretty much because it's one big, huge construction site. And there's a lot of signage that says King Salman Park coming soon. And then you look online and sort of learn about it and you realize actually how big it is. It is massive. Um, again, it's you, you, what you see from the outside are like images of King Salman Park and the crown prince. And there isn't an official completion date for this park, which I think is interesting. Usually they say, well, by 20, whatever, even if they miss a deadline, usually they set a deadline for something like this. And we're going to show, um, if you're listening to this on the podcast uh, platform, just the audio, check it out online or watch this segment on YouTube because we'll have some art of this, um, both the sort of renderings from above and then also some of the stuff that's coming in. So what it is, is a large scale park, uh, but it's also going to be an urban district in Riyadh. When we say large scale park, Richard, we mean the largest urban park in the world. So 6.4 square miles. And it's Jeez. on the grounds of the former King Salman Air Base, which is, I mean, keeps the the thread going of King Salman. And actually, as you know, Richard, King Salman was governor of Riyadh for a very long time. So this is going to be kind of one of his cool lasting legacies on the city itself. Obviously, he'll have many lasting legacies on the country, on the kingdom, but this is going to be really cool. We're talking seven times the size of London's Hyde Park and five times the size of Central Park in New York, which is huge. It's going to have five metro stops when the Riyadh That's Metro amazing. is complete. Five That's metro. Amazing. Yeah, it's. I mean, and you've again, Richard, you've you've seen this, so you kind of know. But it's it's sprawling, and it's right sort of in the middle of Riyadh. So what Riyadh will look like after this thing is finished is different than what what it is now. Saudi architecture and engineering firm. Oh, Marania uh, is the lead design consultant on the project, and it's collaborating with Danish firm, one of the f- most famous in the world, Hennings Larsen Architects, Henning Larsen Architects, excuse me, on the master plan. This was announced in 2019, along with a few other projects that were related to sustainability. Um, yeah, I just think this one is going to be one of those things that is worth visiting in the future. On uh, 2019, Riyadh Governor Prince Faisal bin Bandar said the planners have skillfully designed the park with small valleys and rocky formations, which resembled the Nejd region, thus giving it, it, it a natural beauty and distinctiveness from other parks in the city. Construction started <clears throat> two years ago, excuse me, Richard, with more than $1 billion in contracts awarded by the King Salman Park Foundation. 
What is also interesting, Richard, that just all these like nuggets you kind of get into and then you realize how much time you spent looking into this thing. Um, <laughs> as you as you know, um, with your rusty Arabic and my, and my non-Arabic at all, but Riyadh translates to the gardens or the green space in Arabic, right. which goes back, which is really cool. So there, it's not just going to be a really cool park with, you know, a traffic-free path, an urban loop, walking, cycling, all of that, a lot of green space. There's also going to be a lot of development in terms of a place to maybe live. And they're building a, quote, visitor pavilion and a royal art complex of museums and theaters. So last year at this time, Richard and May, they started construction on the Royal Arts Complex, which will be 500,000 square meters and is designed by architect Ricardo Ricardo Bofill, the Ricardo Bofill. <laughs> and it will offer immersive experiences catering to culture and art in all its forms. So, and there'll be a national theater, 2,300 people. It's pretty large. Another yeah. theater with 650 guests uh, available yeah, three cinema halls in the Royal Arts Complex. So what we're looking at here is sort of like a hybrid, I guess a little bit like Central Park has some, you know, has the zoo and has some other things. It's going to be not just a huge park, but also a places to go, things to do, etc. Um, they just got a new CEO, Richard, in December. So not just, but, you know, four months ago announced right before Christmas, George Tanasevich. Uh, who was CEO of King, uh, excuse me, he was CEO of Marina Bay Sands, the world's most profitable integrated resort in Singapore, which has the iconic inf infinity pool that dominates everyone's Instagram feeds. Um, <laughs> I, again, I can't find anything on the completion date, but um, you can see that they're working on it. You can see the dust over the fence coming up as they're building this thing out. It's kind of cool. And Richard, I should just note, next week we're going to be speaking with Faisal Durrani, who is a partner and head of Middle East research at Knight Frank. He just, we're going to have a really good combo with him. We spoke with him about nine months ago and he, their organization, Knight Frank released a really cool um, new report on Saudi Arabia. We're going to talk to him a little bit about the importance of communities having in Saudi Arabia, having things like integrated green space and things to do and all of that. So um, Richard, this is going to change the face of Riyadh, uh, this park and, is therefore my one big thing this week. <laughs> it's a good one. It's um, I yeah I, I remember the uh, the old airport, which was seemed you know was, and this is like a little north central, so it's up it's up where a lot of things are going on up right above you know King Abdullah Financial District and and that sort of thing. And you're right, it's behind walls, and because a lot of things are behind walls, if you weren't paying attention, you just you you might miss it. Mm -hmm. But it is gargantuan, and it's 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 in keeping with. I mean, it was you mentioned the it was you know announced and launched in 2019, but and, and it was launched with with three other projects, and you mentioned that was in one of those was Riyadh Art, uh, which is you know they're going to curate basically a, a gallery without walls, you know, let, lots lots of art programs throughout the cities. But another one is just Sports Boulevard. I don't know if you've looked at that, but that's like a 135 kilometer multi-purpose track designed for running, cycling, horseback riding. It just, just winds through 135 kilometers, sort of starting at Dreya and winding sort of east. Uh, what are we looking at? So, yeah, uh, west to east across the city, like obviously both ways. Huge project. And and then the third one, 
I mean, then you mentioned King Salman Park. And then the, the third one is Green Riyadh. And the only reason I say this is because King Salman Park, as you really well uh, you know, described and painted as a picture, a huge contribution to the quality of life. If you're a Riyadh resident, same thing with Green Riyadh, obviously over 7.5 million trees planted in the capitals, you know, gardens, parks. That's what they're trying to do. Same thing with Art Riyadh and same thing with uh, with the uh, Sports Boulevard. All these things that have been were part and parcel of Vision 2030 at the beginning, but I think started to reveal themselves as you got along and you moved into the whole project. And and now I think almost, you know, there's so much of what what Vision 2030 is focused on are quality of life issues. You know, how do we make how do we make the existence for our citizens uh, better, healthier, uh, and in many ways more outdoors? And, and you know, this things like the 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 you know King Salman Park. You know, what's what'd you say? Seven times the Central Park. I mean, what seven, about- seven times Hyde Park, five times Central Park. Central Park. Yeah. It's huge. Um, yeah, so what a what a resource. And and then you add that in with all the entertainment opportunities that are coming along, Adia down south. Um just, you know, it, it, they're trying to make, you know, Riyadh a a, a pleasant place to live. Mm-hmm. And for many people, and and I think that's in part because of the numbers they want to hit, you know, in terms of growth for the city is highly contingent on expats coming and choosing to live there and staying. Yeah. Yeah. Not just quality of life for Saudis, but for expats who want to invest in Saudi, do business in Saudi. Um, yeah. Richard, Jerry Inzarello told me that he wanted Daria to be, he didn't want it this way, but it's going to be the Beverly Hills of Riyadh. It'll be really nice and very <laughs> hilly, but also upscale and, you know, very green. You can kind of see it coming in now. If you drive through Daria, it's, headed in that direction. They just had the longest single pour of concrete in the kingdom's history, uh, Richard, which you saw done by uh, Khaled El- Safe's El- uh, Safe group. Yeah, That's the El right. Safe group. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this, but all, what we're sort of seeing with that, the new Baraba, and then these other renovated in, uh, districts, you've got Kaft. Saudi is a lot more livable already. And then with this, I mean, it's going to be an attractive place to visit and live in just a few years, not, not just this product, but just taking everything as a whole. I mean, I don't know, pretty cool. I mean, this is, it looks amazing. And again, look to your, I forget how this works, Richard, because it flips when you do the rendering of the video. So it's this way. I'm sure I'm pointing in the wrong way, but um, (laughs) you'll you'll see all the, yeah, it's just kind of like the scale of it is, you know, that's a theme going on with Saudi Arabia these days, but yeah, it's kind of amazing. I so. would be interested in what they think the you know how the, what they think the completion date is, and of course, a project this size is, isn't finished on time ever. Mm-hmm. And even when it's you know when it's launched and you know presented and the ribbon is cut, there's still a lot of work to do. But it'll be interesting what their due date, expected due date is. Yeah, it makes me think about Central Park and the ambition behind that, and the dedication to keeping it as is and never developing for, you know, because all around it is a wall of skyscrapers and you know any developer would love just a slice of it to develop and the commitment to it is, no, this is our green space in New York City. It's a concrete jungle. This is a place you come and get fresh air and are around trees and is a service to everybody that lives there and visits there. So too will uh, King Salman Park be for Riyadh, I think, if you give it a decade or two, will be a really cool place to go. 
Well, think about it too. <clears throat> I mean, if you're into real estate, I'd be scooping up everything possible and uh, next to it. I mean, it's just like Central Park. And you've got five metro stops that go through King Salman Park. I yes, mean, that, that, that's the, cool. that, the, the real estate, you know, the commercial and retail areas around the park are, will explode. Again, adding value, you know, trying to deepen the economy, trying to, you know, diversify sectors. But the, you, you can see, you can see already people going, okay, I want to be around this thing. I'd love to, I'd love to look at it from my, you know, my apartment or whatever, my house. Mm -hmm. But I'd also like to have access to it easy access to it for me and my kids and whomever. I mean, it's, it's it'll have a lot of good knock-on effects. Agreed. Richard, let's get to our conversation now with Mohammed Soleiman. Just a really good one. Um, it's just awesome conversation. Really informative and timely. And in keeping with our added value of the 966, you're getting some really bright people saying really bright things. Enjoy. We are speaking now with Mohammed Soleiman, who is the director of MEI Strategic Technologies and Cybersecurity Program, a manager at McClarty Associates Middle East and North Africa practice. His work focuses on the intersection of technology, geopolitics, and business in the Middle East and North Africa. Mohammed frequently appears on Arabic and English language television to provide commentary on unfolding events in the Middle East. Mohammed, nice to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I feel like we should give uh, some background because you were just recently named director of the Middle East Institute of Strategic Technology and Cybersecurity Program. Uh, Mabruk, congratulations. Uh, it's a it's a it's a big deal. I got to know you and we got to know you as, in your 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 gig as manager at McClarty Associates. And uh, we should give a shout out to our friend Ali Tolba, who is your colleague over at McClarty and a really seasoned hand who I think a lot of us sort of turn to for insight and guidance and and he's played a big role and that's how i met you i met you through ollie um so uh but i also wanted to talk a little bit about how you here here you are talking about cyber and and uh you know tech and digital and these sorts of things but you you were destined to be an engineer yes i am trained engineer i worked as engineer uh at the beginning of my career so i'm born and raised in cairo uh, uh, did School of Engineering. Uh, first job after graduation was Microsoft Tech Lab. Um, did uh, engineering uh, work for many years of my life and then switched to policy. I went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service, studied tech policy and cyber policy, finished grad school, uh, worked in consulting, again, with very big focus on tech. Um, and then uh, here I am uh, leading a tech program at the Middle East Institute, working on uh, tech decoupling, uh, tech competition in the Middle East, uh, how to think about the Middle East in a new framework that goes beyond energy. Um, so I think it's all connected. I think engineering, my, my engineering background has been very helpful in navigating these new elements of policy. Well, and it's timely for us on the 966. We, we, uh, look for and and have been fortunate enough to uh, host guests. Just last week, Bilal Saab was talking about a new way to look at the relationship, the defense relationship beyond energy, and and you know some, some of the things that have uh, been the case in the past. You've written a series of articles that I think is really interesting, and what really prompted us to invite you on the show. Uh, and and I, I, maybe you can walk us through this because you, it, you, you're dealing with, um, I think, issues that are poorly understood but are just critical to these countries. This, we'll talk about Saudi Arabia with the Gulf. 
critical to the countries as they plot their national strategies going forward. And let's start. You, there's, you, you wrote a series of three articles. And I know you've added a fourth. I may, we might bring it in later. Uh, one is, uh, uh, you know, uh, they call the Middle East in an era of great tech competition, tech decoupling, which you just referred to. Um, the other is the Gulf is a 5G conundrum. And this is where you talk about radio access network. And the, and the third, uh, it's time for Saudi-U.S. tech dialogue. So can you tell us what is the great, what is the great tech decoupling? So let me set a framework here to think about the Middle East, and then we're going to have a deeper dive and answer your question. So why we're thinking about taking the Middle East? I think part of it is this region is not only on the rise uh, because of economic slash fiscal surplus, but also it's a, a region that's going through massive transformation. I'm based in Saudi right now. Saudi is not just a, a Gulf, the Gulf biggest economy. It's a G20 economy. It's a $800 billion GDP, uh, biggest surplus uh, uh, in the GCC slash uh, Middle East. They are directing their own finances towards digital transformation. So they're the biggest buyer and biggest uh, optimizers of uh, high-end tech uh, these days. Same thing applies to the UAE, Abu Dhabi, and Dubai. Same thing applies to Qatar. So focusing on tech in the Middle East, it's not really a luxury. It's actually part of understanding this new Gulf. I call it a new Gulf. It's a Gulf that's a bit different than 1970s, 1980s, even 1990s Gulf, that still people think about it as uh, is stuck in time. That's not really the, this is not really the same uh, region. This is not really the, the same uh, uh, countries. So back to your uh, first question, what's the tech decoupling? For the last 30 years, since the downfall of the Soviet Union, you had um, a global hegemon, this is the United States. And this country um, has been the guardian of new norms, liberal international order, uh, you have globalization on the rise, this is the new norm. So tech was integrated into that. Tech is more about free flow of capital, people, and IP. And I would say IP is the most important part. Intellectual property has been uh, disseminate, disseminated around the, uh, the world. You had uh, tech has been uh, a integrated series of supply chain that's very dispersed across different regions, from uh, East Asia to South Asia to Israel to Europe to United States, all integrated. But this has been the past. Um, I would say somewhere in the last 10 years, the stats of the United States as that only power has changed. Uh, you have clear competition coming from Beijing, and I would say to lesser extent from Moscow, but let's say Beijing is the most important uh, competitor the United States uh, has at the at the moment, and that meant that decision makers in Washington decided that whatever system they built in the last thirty years that enabled the rise of China, we need to change that, and changing that means decoupling. So what decoupling means? That means uh, you're going to weaponize, I'm going to be very blunt, we're going to weaponize choke points in the tech ecosystem to the national interest of the United States. What does it mean in real terms? It means if you have 5G network uh, uh, and you have uh, Chinese tech companies like Huawei or ZTE, we're going to tell our own allies and partners through an initiative that was launched under the Trump administration and Secretary Pompeo called the Clean Network Initiative. If you want to be on the... In, in good terms with the United States, you cannot use Chinese technology. That's uh, that's basically, this is a core 
to our own bilateral relationship. And it succeeded. And on top of that, you had some sanctions uh, on Huawei and ZTE's access to US uh, uh, semiconductors. So you also not only exclude them from markets, you also slow down uh, their progression. That was the 5G. And that's why 5G was very important to the tech decoupling, because this was the biggest fight between China and the United States. When you have Trump team saying, tech is fundamental to our national security, tech is fundamental to US primacy, we need to maintain uh, dominance, and we need to slow down the Chinese. So this is what happened in the 5G. Under the Biden team, not only they fall through on this sort of uh, uh, trajectory, they build on it, they expanded it, they made it uh, expand to different uh, uh, sets of technologies. So last October, you had the export control on semiconductors. You had uh, uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan uh, releasing the export control, which is very clear. The United States decided that uh, AI-powered semiconductors um, are, are not going to, we're not going to export that to, to China. We're also going to tell our own allies and partners, specifically in Tokyo and uh, Amsterdam, that they also have to uh, join us in this uh, sort of effort. Uh, same thing is going to be in AI and biotechnology. So it's much more expansive field when you have tech decoupling taking place. Uh, not only uh, Washington is doing it, it's also bringing allies and partners on board with us. So back to the original story. So why we need to care about tech decoupling in the Gulf, ASEAN, uh, emerging markets? Because everyone is consuming tech. All the tech that you are using or you're buying is a result of uh, a certain system that existed 30 years ago that was based on interdependence. This system is right now is being is crumbling. Uh, and you have to navigate these uh, uh, weird times uh, without really angering uh, uh, the two parties and making sure that you are uh, 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 also prioritizing your national interest and your economic interest in this process. So that's basically my, my long answer to uh, uh to your question that's an that's an excellent overview excellent answer and that, that gives a ter terrific context so let's talk about let's bring it down to the 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 um you know the national level saudi arabia uae the gulf and that sort of thing what is tech sovereignty so i've been writing about tech sovereignty when it was not really a trendy term at all that was like five years ago so what's a tech sovereignty sovereignty it's is treating tech as a medium where they, where the governments or the sovereigns, where uh, the rules of the land need to exert their own sovereignty in this medium. Um, and, and this medium uh, could be space, could be sea, could be land, but also could be tech. Um, uh, so what I mean by tech, it means data. And tech sovereignty started because of the West, not as a response to the West. Meaning, I would argue that emerging markets in general, from Brazil to Nigeria to Egypt, Saudi Arabia to Indonesia, the moment they woke up to the 2016 elections in the United States, um, add to that uh, the allegations of Russian interference in the election, add to that some questions about how some uh, U.S. companies treating data when you had all of these sorts of dynamics happening in the United States. And then the EU responds to that by the GDPR, which is their data uh, regulation. 
talking about how to treat data of EU citizens. I think it gave a cause and it gave a framework to other nations and other countries to think about their own data slash tech sovereignty. So how we as emerging rest, how, how we as uh, G20 nations, has we as uh, countries that have a much more better position uh, than 50 years ago or 40 years ago, how should we think about our own sovereignty in the tech space? And it started with data. I think the first uh, uh, field where countries started thinking about was data. Part of it, the EU started this process with the GDPR, and then they started using GDPR as an intellectual framework, as a legal framework for how they treat data of their own citizens. So now you hear everyone I would say everyone in the emerging markets in the global south is going to refer to GDPR as a benchmark for how the citizens' data should be treated in terms of cross-border data transfer. There's no free flow of data without some sort of oversight or regulations or agreed upon rules between, uh, uh, between countries. So you started to have a different or a new element in bilateral relations. For example, you have the EU-US uh, cross-border data agreement. Now we have uh, the US and UE have a cross-border data uh, agreement, or at least the beginning of, that countries are thinking about data as part of the bilateral relationship, not really as something, something that's free for all, uh, that's accessible uh, uh, as, a, as a default uh, feature. So data is underlined uh, feature, which makes sense because data is the most important element of the tech ecosystem. And you add to that other elements. You have the 5G. Okay, so there's a big fight between China and United States over 5G. Um, uh, the Americans are banning uh, uh, Huawei and ZTE from their own networks, asking allies and partners to exclude Huawei. So how should we think about that? Well, so what's the, let's go back to the original story of what's 5G. 5G is a next generation um, uh, network. Uh, faster uh, is going to be the benchmark enabler of Internet of Things, uh, the tech integration uh, between society and societal elements, private sector, government, military is going to basically multiply your growth and your enhance your societal productivity. Many things underline under this 5G framework. So what's 5G? 5G, as you mentioned, it's a, 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 it's a box that has software, hardware, and uh, transmit uh, uh, these data. The thing is, it was always a closed system. So when you go to a vendor like Huawei or Nokia or Ericsson, you buy the whole system. It's not really uh, uh, something where you're able to pick and choose software, hardware from different vendors. It was a closed ecosystem. So the open RAN, uh, initiatives, because there are multiple initiatives, are all about diversifying the vendors, not relying on one single vendor. So you're able, first of all, to bring some elements of your own tech champions into this game. So if you're an emerging market, you care about having your one of your tech companies to be part of this process. You also are able to uh, pick and choose uh, between uh, uh, companies and countries, like extension. And you also avoid this whole idea of picking uh, picking sides in this in this fight. So you have the Gulf, and this is back to the article that you mentioned. Uh, you have a Gulf Open RAN uh, initiative that has 
all the Gulf uh, um, uh, telecoms part of it. And they actually, uh, last year in 2022, they released their first white paper talking about uh, open RAN integration, opportunities, challenges, the Gulf dynamics. Again, it's very, uh, uh, I would say, very uh, refreshing to see uh, that the Gulf is not only recipient of tech, they're actually active participants. Uh, uh, they have their own capabilities. They also have their own uh, uh, economic priorities, and they're able to navigate that on their own terms. It's fascinating. It's an echo of what's going on at, at, at the political level in terms of you know post-Ukraine and post-invasion of Ukraine in terms of, of Saudi Arabia and many countries sort of staking out a, a middle region between one side and the other and trying you know the term is hedging but you know trying to maintain key relationships with with countries around the globe and not just be completely aligned with one or the other um it's so when when saudi arabia looks at this uh and they they are in the midst of i think they've just launched a, a data personal data uh, law and I know they really struggled with this. Is, is, is has it is it fully together? Is it is it something because this is critical in terms of investment? It's obviously critical preserving your data, uh, the integrity of your data, and the security issues. But you also have to have an environment where people want to come and do business. Have they have they hit it with this with this personal data plan? So they they launched something called the PDBL, the Personal Data Law. Um, which is also benchmarking uh, the European GDPR. They had a challenge. Listen, they're an emerging. They are a G20 country. They have a challenge, and this challenge is very, uh, uh, very simple. Uh, how can you uh, balance between your national interest and uh, uh, the data of your own citizens slash bringing international companies uh, who are very reliant on cross cross border data? Did they hit it with that? I think we will see. I think. Uh, what we're gonna, what we're gonna keep an eye on is how companies are gonna react to that. Uh, what are their responses? How this is gonna affect their own joint ventures, their own local footprint in the Saudi market in the next two years? And you know the best thing about data, uh, it's immediate results. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna let's wait for five years to evaluate. No, I'm gonna tell you this can be next year because the 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 law was just uh, we did an amendment that was just confirmed or released last week or two weeks ago. Uh, so right now it's in place. So let's see how this is going to impact the Saudi market in the, ne in the next year. This is this has really been a concise and informative uh, discussion, Mohammed. So so let's move to your, not your most recent, but you know something you wrote for MEI, and that's time for a Saudi-US tech dialogue. Because we see we have we see the global competition between the U.S. China, and we see at the regional level and and G20 countries, mid middle powers, as it were, uh, you know, trying to work in this environment and trying to succeed and preserve their their tech and digital sovereignty, as you as 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 you called it. Um, what do you mean by it's time for a U.S. Saudi tech dialogue? As a Washington insider, as someone who, who is part of the, the Washington uh, Echo Chamber, I think we're still stuck back in the 1990s with, with Saudi Arabia, meaning uh, we still think that uh, oil for, for security framework uh, is the right framework. I don't think so. I think this is a very, very, very outdated 
uh, framework to think about the relationship for simple for simple reasons. I would say number one, America is the biggest oil producer in the world right now. Uh, that's a fundamental fact. So that means our perception of the Gulf is different. There's a difference between the United States as a security guarantor based on the fact that the United States is the biggest uh, uh, energy consumer client in the 70s and 80s, some extent in the 90s, to today where the United States is the biggest uh, oil producer. So that changes some of the aspects of the relationship. Number two, this is not Saudi Arabia uh, uh, of the past. Uh, this is a G20 country, and I think I always stress on this fact, a G20 country, it's, it's a bit different than just being a Gulf country or a Middle East country. It's a country that's part of an emerging, I would say, uh, 10 economies that are going to play a decisive role in this new economic dynamics on the global level. It's Brazil, it's Nigeria, it's India, it's Indonesia, it's Saudi Arabia. So they're thinking differently. They're thinking about positioning not only from a Gulf standpoint or Middle East standpoint, they're thinking about themselves from a global standpoint. So when you have these two different dynamics in the same place, oil for security doesn't really doesn't really work. You have to think about the relationship differently. I'm not saying oil and security are not important, just to make sure I'm saying this correctly. I'm not saying they are not important. I'm saying uh, uh, it's not an encompassing framing for the relationship. So what should be the encompassing uh, framework for the relationship? We need to think about Saudi Arabia as a G20 economy. We think about Saudi Arabia as a country that's going through a massive economic transformation that's unprecedented in the emerging markets. Um, I have, I mean, as you know, I don't really settle in one city. I travel all over. And Saudi story is unique, meaning you don't see that massive transformation in a country like what we're seeing in Saudi Arabia right now. Part of it is science, part of it is own GDP, part of it is the the uh, the budget allocated for this economic transformation. So from, from the way that you, they are reconstructing, redesigning their existing cities to the new cities, to thinking about civilian nuclear programs, to thinking about uh, 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 housing tech inside Saudi Arabia, to investing in critical slash high-end tech overseas, to their own pivot to Asian markets in ASEAN, this is different. So we need to meet them where they are right now because this is their ambition. So, and we have a lot to offer, right? It's not really as like, well, just talk as just a policeman. America is more than a policeman uh, uh, in the Gulf. That shouldn't be the framing. The moment we're just, the United States is think, thinking about itself as just a policeman that's there for some only exclusively for, for security, I think this is a losing strategy for the United States regardless of the administration. Tech transformation, this means where the United States is from this tech transformation from a national level. We're not only speaking about U.S. companies going to the Gulf. You also need to develop some sort of a tech for, or tech-centric uh, 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 foreign policy in terms, of, uh, in terms of how to think about data, how to think about uh, investment in tech, how to think about talent. The question of talent is very important how to think about uh, uh, other elements of uh, uh, tech cooperation, meaning electrical vehicles, low orbit space, low, low orbit satellite. And these are uh, uh, clear advantages for the United States, clearly. People like American tech. The problem is sometimes American tech is not really accessible because of local grounds. I'm gonna be very, uh, so we need to rethink about that. Because if we're not rethinking really about that, we're gonna lose ground because you cannot really, and this is what happened with 5G, you let go of the 5G battle from the beginning. 
you didn't invest. You didn't have your own your own alternative. So eventually, you wake up to the fact that China is dominating the 5G network with more than 50% of the market share based on pure economics, right? Uh, all these countries, when they went to Huawei and ZTE to get their 5G equipment, it was purely economics, meaning it's 40%, 30% cheaper than Sweden and Finland, Nokia and Ericsson. Clearly, I'm going to go to Huawei if I'm a policymaker that are thinking about the uh, national interest and the economic interests of my people. So this is what we should also think about. You should not really uh, let go of the space and then uh, uh, and then uh, have concerns or uh, be mad that people are not really uh, uh, coming to you for your own tech anymore. <laughs> um, you touch on so many things that are uh, themes on the nine six six. One is uh, you know update the, the our update our perspective and our framework on how we want to interact with Saudi Arabia and many of these countries. The other, and I think it's a big one, is is if it's a competition, we can compete. And and you know, I was really encouraged. We did a segment last week, uh, Lucian, um, on on the discussions that Bill Burns, the head of the CIA, was out in the region in, in Saudi Arabia, and also Jake Sullivan, uh, NSA director, was uh, had a phone call with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and the readout was really interesting to me. And you, you probably didn't notice this, but they specifically talked about open RAN. And 5G and 6G as well. Yeah. Yeah. And they talked about clean energy. Um, mm-hmm. All areas that we should be engaging full on, full bore with Saudi Arabia. Um, are you seeing a shift in the way people look and interact with Saudi Arabia in terms of U.S. policymakers? I love what you just mentioned. I think... I think the clear example of there is that there is some sort of a change in Washington and the way they see Saudi Arabia, I think, was last year when President Biden visited Jeddah uh, when he came here to town. When you look into um, uh, some of the statements and some of the MOUs that were signed, it was about urban land, 5G, 6G, space cooperation, clean energy cooperation. And the fact that you have that uh, uh, in writing, it's also very telling about how Saudi Arabia is trying to say, this is how we want you to see us. We're not only here for oil. Oil is going to be here for what, a generation, two generations, but we're also thinking about this century differently. So we want to think with you about space policy. right? I mean, remember, the UAE just launched uh, a mission to Mars. It was mm-hmm. the sixth country uh, on Earth to send uh, a mission to Mars in cooperation with the United States, by the way. right? So... This is where Saudi is and thinking. They think about open ran, and they're not thinking about open ran as the 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 how somehow sided with the United States. Not really. Open ran is more about sovereignty. Open ran is more about opening up the ecosystem. We also want our own companies to be part of this. We also want to build our own capability uh, in house. Mm-hmm. And this we should encourage having having countries that are much more independent in terms of these sort of critical uh, technologies and infrastructure is actually beneficial because we have been, the United States has been saying for the last 20 years, I would say since the second term of George Bush, President Obama, President Trump, and right now President Biden, uh, we want burden sharing. This is part of burden sharing, by the way. Burden sharing is not really just spending. Burden sharing also means technology. and means R&D. and means investing in local capability. and means uh, 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 or uh, uh, more cooperation in these sort of fields. So I, I see from that sort of standpoint, uh, if you are thinking and calling for hedging 
and partners and allies playing a much more bigger role in their own defense and security. This is part of the framework. Fascinating. Um, I don't. This is this is so in keeping with so many things we want to we want to uh, platform on the nine six six. Yeah, and I think it's uh, I think it's really uh, timely, Mohammed, that you're talking about tech because it is you know it is it, you know it is first and foremost for Saudi Arabia. You know we you know they're putting in data centers, they're putting in subsea cables. Everything is about tech driving forward. Um, and trying to make their way in this sort of more conflicted, more antagonistic uh, global power environment is a tremendous challenge. I, I, you know, I really don't have anything to add because I think you, you know, we just pushed, as we say sometimes here, we just pushed start. And this was a tremendous overview of, of the, the environment and the challenge and the potential for uh, the U.S. to be involved in this this evolution in, in Saudi Arabia and the region. And a lot of, as you say, it's not just Saudi, but they're middle powers. You know, there's Brazil and, you know, Indonesia and India and, and Nigeria, all these countries that are trying to make their way in this very fraught environment. Um, and we can plug in maybe more constructively than we have in the past. 100% agreed. And I think this is why I was I was very excited about leading the tech program for the Middle East Institute. I, I felt that this is, it's the right time, the right field, uh, the right framework. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm very happy about the work we do. And I'm very happy that you read the, the pieces that you mentioned uh, in detail, because I think we're doing a good job trying to highlight um, how the relationship should be uh, for the 21st century. Well, and, and speaking of that, we always want to be cognizant of, of other organizations that we think are doing great work. And, and Middle East Institute is doing good work. They're hiring people like you, but also, um, you know, across the board, there's some really talented analysts and and uh, and experts. So uh, we, we love to see that because obviously we benefit from it because we get to feature them. Very kind of you. I will I will deliver the message to uh, our leadership. <laughs> Mohammed Soleiman, director of the MEI Strategic Technologies and Cybersecurity Program. Thank you, Mohammed. This was wonderful. We appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. That was our conversation with Mohammed Soleiman. I'm very sorry at the intro, my voice was super low and scraggly and it was really dark in the room that I'm in. So you can see, I don't know, like it probably <laughs> sounded like I had just woken up. That is not true. Allergies are just really bad. Played some golf on Sunday, so I, my voice was not. <laughs> it, it, it was recorded early in the morning. It was, yes. So I mean, it, the light changes. I mean, what was it? Was that eight a.m. post for that one? Eight a.m. post for that one. Yeah. yeah, I was I was wide awake, but the voice made it sound like you yeah, had exactly. just <laughs> roused me up in the middle of the night. So anyway, thank you to Mohammed. That was a great <laughs> conversation. Um, well done, Richard. So let's awesome get to conversation. Yella, Saudi in a minute. <laughs> the the um. The new segment's coming with the audio and everything, so people don't have to hear that. But it's really fun, to, <laughs> really fun to say that into the mic every week. <laughs> Yella number one. Uh, as Russia scours the globe for buyers of its energy products, it is finding eager trade partners in an unlikely place: the oil-rich petrostates of the Persian Gulf. Since Western sanctions over the war in Ukraine cut off Russia from many of its established trading partners, state companies from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have stepped in to take advantage of discounted prices for Russian products, according to oil executives and industry analysts. Yeah, I mean, of course, the U.S. and its Western allies don't like this. 
But the report also says these countries are using uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are using the fuel, the discounted Russian products internally, including for consumption and then and refining purposes and, and exporting their own barrels at market rates. So that's boosting their bottom line. This is Saudi Arabia sort of forging its own path here and taking advantage of it. I mean, yeah. That's, you know, the U.S. is not going to buy these products. <clears throat> France is not going to, you know, the West, uh, Europe is not going to buy these products, but they will find a market for them in the Middle East if they don't find it for uh, these products in India or Asia. So, yeah, interesting. Well, it's interesting. And, and you know, war has all sorts of unforeseen consequences. And, you know, you take actions and you think something will happen and maybe something else happens. The fact, so, so the, the, the sanctions, uh, the bans, basically affected took took effect February fifth. So that means you know seaborne uh, Russian Russian refined oil products, you know seaborne or anything, they all are affected by the ban. And the the way that it's done is that you know essentially all those the insurers, shippers, people who make the the transport of these fuels possible, are the ones that are being sanctioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact is, it's working. Uh, revenue, revenue from the uh, from Russian exports of its fuel is is uh, significantly less than it was a year ago. Um, but the volume is the same, roughly. I mean, they've found new markets in India and China, and and they found new markets uh, throughout the Middle East, you know, there's, there's, they have buyers in Africa, they have buyers in Morocco, Algeria, Nigeria, Senegal, Tunisia, Ghana, Egypt, all imports, you know, Russian fuel imports have gone up 450,000 barrels a day. And you have, you know, the UAE is housing a lot of storing oil and Saudi Arabia because it makes economic sense and they're not violating the sanctions. In other words, they're getting these, you know, the sanctions require that, you know, the cap on Russian diesel is $100 per barrel and the cap on lower cost petroleum products is set at $45 a barrel. So, so if you're a, if you're smart, you're going to take these products at a discount. And by the way, Saudi Arabia has increased its fuel products to the EU in part because they're taking these, these discounted Russian fuel for domestic use, as you mentioned. So, um, you know, it's an, you know, it's an interesting circumstance. It, you know, if the purpose is to reduce revenue from, uh, from Russian uh, fossil fuel and energy uh, exports, that's working. Uh, but the numbers in terms of amount is roughly the same. Yeah. They're Saudi Arabia and the UAE are not going to, they're taking more of a neutral stance in the, in the Ukraine Russia conflict, the Russia invasion of Ukraine, but they're also, it's not like they're siding with Russia by doing this. It was really well said, Richard, they're, they've given what, $400 million to Ukraine and in, in energy and other aid. So they're not just, they're not totally taking a neutral stance, but yeah, I mean, they're not, they also cut production last week. And these are two things that the U S would not want to see, but it's the way it is. You know, I I, I I don't disagree. I think they're working they're 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 working the system as it presents itself. Uh, UAE may be a little closer to Russia in terms of its behavior. I mean, oil exports to the UAE more than tripled to like a record sixty million barrels last year. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, that's, you know, that's more than, you know, that's uh, significantly more than, say, Singapore, which is another large trading hub. And UAE is also, like I said, storing significant amounts of oil, as much oil almost as they store of Saudi oil. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know where the UAE is on this. Um, I, I'm sure they're careful to to stay within the lines as insofar as, you know, monitors can see. I don't know what they're doing outside the lines, but uh, you know what they're doing here and taking on Russian, you know, fuel products at a discounted price. Um, you know, still stays within the sanctions environment. Yellow number two: <laughs> Saudi Arabia's budget will more than make up for a production cut announced by the kingdom with OPEC and its allies, according to the IMF, as it reels in more revenue thanks to higher crude prices and keeps spending in check. You know, that's uh, when you this is the IMF and IMF is is pretty bullish on their both their economy and the revenues. You know, people Goldman Sachs and others are less bullish. Um, but I think, again, we've we were broken record on this. You know, the key part of that is the last four words of the blurb you read, which mm-hmm. was keeps spending in check. You know, Saudi Arabia is predicting in about a $4.3 billion surplus for 2023, you know, significantly less than the 2022, which is kind of a one-off. Um, but it's because they're managing their expenses um, or trying to. So, and, it, you know, so we'll see what the actual, you know, you know, it's obviously there's, you know, volume of production and cost, you know, one goes up, the other goes, you know, what that relationship is in, in terms of total revenue. Um, so we'll see what it turns out to be. If IMF is right, if Goldman Sachs is right, if others are right. But uh, you know, if Saudi Arabia keeps managing its its house and its finances, uh, it's going to be okay either way. Yeah, well said. Um, <clears throat> number three, Saudi Arabia launches four special economic zones for boosting investments. Uh, Saudi Arabia launched uh, special economic zones on in Riyadh, Jazan, Ras Al-Khair, and King Abdullah Economic City, north of Jeddah, according to Forbes Middle East. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman highlighted, quote, huge opportunities for the development of the local economy, unquote, that the zones will provide in terms of job creation, technology, transfer, industry localization, and development of the Saudi business community. Yeah, this is... I think this is really big, Richard, because there's been a lot of talk about VC in Saudi Arabia and investing in Saudi companies that are emerging, but there are very few that are emerging in deep technologies and industrial technologies. A lot of the technologies that are emerging in Saudi Arabia are consumer technologies, and that's good. But in terms of becoming an engine of job creation and economic growth, some of this industrial technology is going to be very, very important in, in terms of doing that and localizing the supply chain and all of that. So these are these zones are going to attract companies to come into Saudi Arabia and get their technology manufactured and, and set up and manufactured locally in Saudi Arabia. And that's, I think, in my opinion, huge. But, I, you know, sorry. well, I was just going to say, <clears throat> so, I mean, and they have set so goals for this. So the ministry, Minister of Industry and Mineral Resources set the goal of increasing the number of factories in Saudi Arabia by to 36,000 by 2035 from 7,200 now. That is going to be, I'm, I'm going to be watching that very closely because 
that is, ma- I mean, that's, first of all, that's a really serious jump in not that long of time. Setting up a factory is not easy. And so these economic zones can help do that, especially international companies that want to manufacture locally inside of it because it makes business sense to do so. But you need these zones with special economic treatment and access to the local supply chain to do it. So I, yeah, this is really cool. I mean, this, this is, these zones are going to help a lot is, I guess, just the point I want to make. You know, it's interesting that they didn't, hadn't been done before. You have, you have economic cities, uh, but you, they have not set up these special economic zones and the benefits of, of, of an SEZ, SEZ mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost easier to say special economic zone includes uh, competitive corporate tax rates, exemption from customs duties on imports, production inputs, machinery and raw materials, 100%. This is a big one, 100% foreign ownership of companies and flexibility, <laughs> excuse me, to attract and hire the best talent worldwide. And they're going to do them, each zone of the four will sort of have a, a particular focus so that the King of Bell Economic City is going to advance manufacturing and logistics. Uh, the... Uh, zone at Ras al-Khair, which is on the Gulf, uh, maritime gateway for mining imports and exports. Jazan's uh, special economic zone, which is down along the Red Sea, uh, gateway to Africa investors eager to capitalize on large-scale infrastructure projects, which makes a lot of sense. That's really a geographic, uh, you know, knockout there. And the one at Kext in Riyadh uh, is cloud computing, you know, innovation and collaboration. So, you know, they have things in mind and people seem to be excited about it. And that their model, and this is why, you know, I'm a little surprised it's, it's taken this long to do it. I mean, the original free zone at Jebel Ali port was established in 1985 and, you know, wasn't much there, 19 companies. Today it hosts more than 9,500 firms. I mean, and it's, you know, it's one of the leading free zones in the world. And it's been just a huge generator for business innovation, you know, all, you know, lots of localization, technology transfer, all the things you want to see if you're, you're a country emerging, emerging uh, economy. Um, <clears throat> so great. This is exciting. And we'll, we'll watch this closely because you really want to see it work. Yeah. I mean, great points there, Richard, too, about Jebel Ali. That's really interesting. It doesn't say who is directly like in charge of this it just said that it came down from CETA which is obviously chaired by uh his royal highness uh crown prince Mohammed bin Salman it doesn't say like oh this falls under this minister's purview so it's interesting to see who is going to be managing this and administering this but yeah I mean this is what you want to see if you are rooting for strong economic growth tech transfer all of these things these things are good you're right i don't know it took so long to really do this this has been in the works for a while for sure um but this is this is interesting we will watch this closely yeah yeah i think that's you is it you oops it is me sorry um yellow number four Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu said on Monday that normalizing relations with Saudi Arabia would be a, quote, giant leap towards ending the Arab-Israeli conflict. He said, we want normalization and peace with Saudi Arabia. We view that as a as perhaps a giant leap toward ending the Arab-Israeli conflict. He said in comments to uh, during a meeting with 
U.S. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham getting two in a row episode mentions on the 966. It was kind of amazing. <laughs> Would not have seen that. Very cool. Just, Lindsey Graham just fresh from Saudi. He's everywhere. Meeting, fresh from Saudi going to Israel. Meeting yeah. with the, friend, the crown prince. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've talked about this before. You know, when I saw this one, I went and looked up the meaning of gaslighting. <laughs> I still don't really get what that. I mean, somebody's explained that to me like 50 times. What, what is it again? It's so like gaslighting manipulate someone using psychological methods into questioning their own sanity and powers of reasoning. Oh, so, now I know why I don't get it. Cause <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he keeps talking about this and his own people are going, you know, there's nothing to indicate that it's, this is a right moment for this sort of conversation. And so there's a lot of speculation on why he keeps talking about this. I mean, I think, you know, I think part of it is he's, you know, he wants to, you know, he hasn't been invited to Washington, D.C. to meet President Biden. And he's getting a lot of uh, flack, deservedly so, for his right wing cabinet and his, you know, attack on the Saudi, I mean, on the Israeli uh, judicial system. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the Biden administration wants him to behave a little more responsibly and a little more constructively. And part of that may be, you know, to reach out to Saudi Arabia, but, uh, you know, it, the, the Saudi Arabia just hosted, um, you know, Mahmoud Abbas, the head Palestinian president, as well as representatives from Hamas. You know, Saudi Arabia just sent their foreign minister to meet uh, with counterparts in Syria you know, talking about getting Syria back into the Arab League and and normalizing there. You know, it's it things are moving. Not you know, from an Israeli perspective, it's all very concerning. Um, but also, I think you know, if there's going to be, and we've talked about this, Lucian. This is all speculation, and maybe something. Maybe maybe BB knows something we don't know. And let's face it, you know, the, the you know the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia has been very very decisive and surprising in other ways. So we don't know what's going to happen. But ostensibly, you know, normalization with Israel depends on U.S. actions, including you know a yeah, significantly more detailed and robust security relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And you know, one, that's extremely unlikely to be agreed to by Congress. And two, therefore, it's solely contingent on the policies of a sitting U.S. president, which the Saudis, you know, have concluded, you know, you look at Bush two, Obama, Trump, Biden, it's, it's an unreliable framework for them. I mean, so, so I'm not sure you know, I'm not you know, based on Israel's behavior in in terms of occupied territories, based on Saudi Arabia's assessment of what the U.S. would do to make a normalization effort palatable. I, I, that's what I say. It, it it defies logic at the moment, which is sort of the the you know the definition of gaslighting. You know, to make question your own sanity or powers of reasoning. You know, he keeps talking about this, and and you you wonder why. Yeah, he had some direct words for Saudi Arabia on Wednesday with Hadley Gamble in an interview. He sort of cautioned Saudi Arabia on partnering with Iran. Um, he said those who partner with Iran partner with misery. Look at Lebanon, look at Yemen, look at Syria, look at Iraq. 95% of the problems in the Middle East emanate from Iran. 
I mean, it may actually be somewhat correct about that, depending on how you view it. But he also <laughs> said that visiting Saudi Arabia was still very much on the table. Richard, and as the, the point well, you made, it's it, like, is it? I mean, yeah, I know. What are you it, talking you know, about? Yeah. Foreign minister. And what does that mean, on the table? Of course it's on the yeah, table. Of course it, it is. Could yeah. happen in, it could happen in 2040. <laughs> I mean, and and it's a, and, and, and to, to this is what, you know, there's a there's there's a bit of arrogance here i mean if you're telling the saudis to be wary of iran are you kidding me yeah they know that <laughs> oh my goodness you know they're the ones you know so so i mean it, 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 you know saudi arabia is you know moving in its own best interest as it perceives it you know Bibi netanyahu has no position to say really you shouldn't you shouldn't you know engage with iranians yeah um I, I, you know, so anyway, again, it's a lot of blather, if you ask me. I mean, that's not diplomatic. Um, you know, he's speaking to a particular constituency, uh, his own and the American one. Uh, and, you know, what comes out, comes out. But, you know, again, most of it's gaslighting, if you ask me. Yeah. BB Netanyahu is a cat-shaped balloon. <laughs> it's full of hot air. And it's got nine lives. I mean, this guy just keeps coming back. He's getting ousted. Is that your? Is that your own? I just came up with that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, everybody. I'm out. (laughs) No, I mean, it's just he's. It's kind of amazing. Like when he he made his comeback, I was like, wow, again, unbelievable. This guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, Number five. uh, uh, UAE's Emirates. UAE's Emirates Airlines and Saudi Arabia's Saudi Ramco are the top companies in UAE and KSA, respectively, as per LinkedIn's annual list of top companies for the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Um, while in the UAE, Procter & Gamble, uh, Carney, Majid al Futame, and Visa take the, take the uh, next four spots after uh, Emirates Airlines. And in Saudi Arabia, following Saudi Ramco is Red Sea Global Hospitality, STC Telecommunications, Procter & Gamble, and Saudia. Richard, when the 966 expands with our uh, regional HQ in Riyadh, then we will be very close to the top of this list because we're great to work with. But um, yeah, this is, I, I like this. I like this story because it shows sort of a, a private sector in Saudi Arabia that's growing and trying to compete with itself to get high value employees. So you need to provide a really good work atmosphere in order to get that. So, I mean, then these, some of the, you know, a lot of these names are non-Saudi companies, obviously Emirates and Kearney, Procter & Gamble, but you do have Saudi companies here, Aramco, Majid Al-Futame, uh, so obviously Red Sea Global. So this is, yeah, I mean, this is really cool. These, these companies are obviously providing a lot for their employees to try to retain top talent. We've talked about this before. It's, and, you know, any times you're applying metrics, you know, it's like a, it's like a, 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 a um, you know, any kind of competitive event, if, you know, you can play it for fun, but then when you start keeping score, then it gets real. So anytime there's metrics and, you know, the performance tends to improve. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I think that's good. This is the third LinkedIn one, you know, they're getting better at it. Um, and so I thought it was interesting. I just want to go through the list because Saudi, because the list is, is not only uh, diverse in terms of, of sectors, but also in, in size. So Saudi Aramco is one, that's 76,000 employees. By the way, I think that's impressive for Saudi Aramco, a company of that size to come in first. And it's an extraordinarily well-run company. So great point. Yep. 
you know, Red Sea Global, 3,500 employees, STC, 15,500, Procter & Gamble, 700 in the U.S., I mean, in Saudi, Saudia, 20,000, Bupa, which is hospitals and healthcare, Bupa's number six, 2,000, uh, Spimaco, pharmaceutical, you know, 1,600, SAB al uh, financial services, 3,800, Madden, and, you know, and so those, it's also, so you have, you have some, you know, hybrid companies too, uh, like Saudi Ramco and Madden, you know, 5,600 at Madden is, is mining. Um, Islamic Development Bank, really interesting. You know, 900, Mobily, uh, 4,000. Uh, and then the last few, SLB, which is technology. I've never heard of SLB. Um, 4,200, PepsiCo, PepsiCo, 1,400. Good for you, PepsiCo. We, we're a big fan of PepsiCo. Uh, and at 15, Unilever. Uh, that's cool. Two, you know, several U.S. companies in here. That makes that that makes me very happy. You go, go U.S. USA, USA. Richard, we're up against a hard stop here, as they say in the business. So we're going to go to Yella number six. Excellent, because we do want to have spend just a little bit of time on this one. Yes. <laughs> Cristiano Ronaldo once again dominates headlines as his team loses. We talked a little bit about Saudi soccer earlier. Football, mm -hmm. excuse me, and Richard's one big thing. Cristiano Ronaldo once again dominated the headlines both during and after his side's 2-0 loss at Al-Halal on Tuesday. After being booked for a WWE-style tackle, Ronaldo <laughs> reacted to chants from home supporters of Lionel Messi, allegedly with an obscene gesture in their direction. The incident caused debate and drama throughout the kingdom. Odeon Ighalo got the better of Ronaldo as he scored the two goals, which earned Al-Halal a 2-0 home win against Al Nasser in the Saudi Arabia League on Tuesday. So, Richard, we won't show the gesture out of respect. <laughs> Your thoughts? <laughs> uh, did you see the tackle, too? Tackle yeah, that was, was WWE tackle, style. That was tackle was Bush League. Yeah. Um, it's going to be interesting. And I say this when I was in our friend, uh, our friend, when I was in Jeddah, I went to see the reason I was, if you, if you happen to listen to the whole show and then I mentioned in my one big thing, the reason uh, I was at the, uh, Al-Itihad Al-Hathli basketball game is because my, our good friend, Lena Almaina is co-founder and runs Jeddah United, which is a, a, a club in one of the earliest clubs and it's established in, in Jeddah. Her daughter plays basketball, and we were there to watch her daughter play. So this was before any of these instances, and she was talking. She said she mentioned specifically that Ronaldo had in a fit, in one of his fits, he had kicked a water bottle on the sideline. And she was saying, you know, it's really a poor example, and I'm really disappointed. And I think a lot of Saudis look at it that way. I mean, Saudis, Saudis, uh, I mean, are not as tolerant or accustomed to, or sort of, uh, you know, somehow inured. You know, we get used to misbehavior on the part of athletes, mm -hmm. and we just set it aside. Uh, Saudis, I don't think, is tolerant. And you know, the 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 crotch grab that is all the thing that Ronaldo did. If you probably saw that, I mean, it's. You know, Nasser is saying he was injured. You know, it's, uh, you know, you know, it's one of those, well, okay, if you're going that way. But it doesn't change the fact that, you know, this guy is getting paid $200 million a year. And he's a diva. 
and he's acting sort of in a petulant way uh, on a number of occasions. And let's see how well it wears. Sure. I agree with that. I also see this as Ronaldo being a competitor and really caring about winning and losing. And all the best athletes really care about winning and losing, no matter what they're doing in life, throughout life. And he really cares about winning. You know, so if you thought that he would be coming into the Saudi league saying, thanks for the check, I'm going to put the jersey on and just put me in, I'll come in and score a couple goals, wave to the fans, sign some signatures. I think it's very clear that he is taking this very seriously and he really wants to win the cup. So when you see things like the WWE style tackle, you see him getting mad at the fans. These are things that athletes in every sport do. They, they get emotional. They get caught up in the moment because they want to win and they want their opponent to lose in a lot of situations because it's just in their nature. It's in their DNA. So I'm kind of happy to see that from that level that he is competing and he wants to win. On a different level, I'm happy about this because we are now talking about the Saudi league, the Saudi pro league. And this is the type of drama, by the way, I know it's that a gesture was obscene and it's not a good example, but I mean, I could go through 15 of these examples that happened in the U.S. in the last two weeks. You look at Draymond Green in the NBA yeah. a couple of nights ago, stepping on the chest of, you know, there's and, and these stories, Richard, I don't, we don't need to go all through all of them, but these stories are part of the fact that sports is the number one reality TV show in the world. And it's always going to be that way because it is very real. And these are real emotions we're seeing, but we are talking about this drama and we're talking about the league and we're talking about these things that I think adds to the value of the league. I mean, you get this debate. Now you'll get people arguing over dinners in Riyadh and, and in Jeddah. Oh yeah. I think it was very unprofessional the way he behaved, but you're, you're generating interest in the league and we're generating headlines up from gold.com which is not based in Saudi Arabia and, you know, FIFA and these other websites, ESPN are now really interested in this because people are listening and following and, and, and seeing what's going on. So I, I think it's good. I really would have been disappointed, you know, just as an observer, if he just went in there and said, Hey, everybody, like, thanks, you know, for the cash, um, you know, I'm going to live yeah. in the four seasons and that's it. So I, I like that he's competing and I like that there's that passion. Uh, and uh, fair points. And, and, you know, that's, guess you know, they, 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 you know, they brought him in to get eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so he's getting eyeballs and that's to the good. Uh, I also think it might be interesting in terms of the league itself that he would, he might come in and Al Nasser not win the league. Cause that, that sort of speaks to the quality of the league. In other yes. words, you know, and Ronaldo isn't so it, the league isn't so weak that Ronaldo can come in and, and, and bend the gravity of it, you know, great point. And so, uh, but you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I'm with you. I'm a, I'm older generation. You know, I, you know, I'm coach's son and you play the game, right. You don't, you know, and, and I recognize a hundred percent and acknowledge that what you're saying is accurate. Mm -hmm. um, it's still distasteful to me when people behave like chumps. I agree and, with and, that. You know, and I know it's just to say for you too, but it, you're right. It doesn't matter as long if, if, if in the larger purpose of uh, bringing eyeballs and attracting eyeballs, um, you know, if it's being effective, I, I do think that, you know, you know, Saudis I know are uncomfortable with that kind of behavior. Um, but you know, they're fans. I do think, and I, 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 I think he definitely, he's a competitor and he's obviously a, high level competitor, but I also think he's highly insecure about Lionel Messi.
Yeah, well, we I think, learned that. I think, it, I think it's really <laughs> hilarious that they're chanting Messi's name at games. I mean, that's that's very astute in terms of going for someone's weak spot. Yeah. This sport is full of hotheads and divas, to be honest. I mean, look at the World Cup of the cup, like with the um, the headbutt, and there's just, just these guys are really, you know, they're very passionate, but they're also very immature in a lot of situations. Absolutely, and, you know, it's absolutely. Like, uh, it's it's like the one thing golf teaches you, Richard, is that you know you're not ever going to be even when you're a pro, you're going to have bad days. Just there's no way around it. But you never break a club or throw a club or anything. You've got to be master of your own domain. And it sounds like Ronaldo has a little bit of challenges kind of keeping his attitude in check. Um, but it also shows that he cares. So, I mean, I think we both, I think we, I fully agree with your point about. And I agree with you know, yours. Being kind of immature and, you know, you yeah. kind of don't do that just because there's, there are children out there and you don't want them to, to copy that. But the right. NFL every week in the U.S. has some sort of thing like this where they have to come down with a fine or a suspension because of a celebration or taunting or whatever. <laughs> but um, it's, so it's common, but not common in Saudi. And here we are on the last side of Yella talking about this. And yeah. so I think that's a, a value add overall. Richard, we need to, unfortunately, put put a bow in this one. This um, was a good one. They're all good, but they're all fun too. But uh, this it's good when we get to the end of it. It's been a fun chat. Yeah, it's been fun. A great conversation with Muhammad. We really appreciate that. Next week, Faisal Durrani, we're going to be talking about Saudi real estate, commercial and residential. Just going to be awesome. Can't wait for that. And Richard, have a great rest of your week. Well done, sir. Well done to you. <laughs> Take care, man. Thanks, man.